getting excited. You hear the music, you know it's time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a great show. And Ira, not in studio, but usually there's a good reason why you're not in studio, Ira. And you've been all over the eastern seaboard the past couple of days, and we're hoping to have you back in South Florida soon. Yeah, well, I'm coming back tomorrow, but I was in, of course, New Orleans, and then I went to Augusta for the Masters, and I had to go to Durham, North Carolina, Duke from a law school reunion. And I'm actually broadcasting the show tonight from a famous uh, house. <laughs> um, it's called the Cameron House. Have you heard of the Cameron Indoor Stadium? It's Eddie Cameron's house. Eddie Cameron, was the, the stadium was named after, was a coach at Duke and was very famous. And this is the ha- this is his house. So that he had, and uh, so I'm from the the Cameron uh, Duke house. Like this is about as Duke as you can get. Besides being in Coach K's living room, I'm uh, broadcasting from the house. My friend bought the house and renovated it, and it's a it's like one of those historic houses in all of Durham. It's very cool stuff, and I, you know, I wish we could spend an hour just talking about you know <laughs> this you know fun weekend that you've had here outside of all the sports. But was it a little bit of a more somber attitude with Duke, you know, having not uh, made it to the finals and, and getting through than it would have been? I'm sure you guys would have really been partying if they had gone all the way. I want to tell you something. Yes, it's very, it's devastating. I think Duke fans are upset how the season ended, losing to North Carolina. And I listen to national sports radio shows on Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, driving around to the hand, to, to the Augusta. And I heard Chris, Chris Mad, Mad Dog Russo say, oh, what a disappointment North Carolina has. They lost in the championship game to Kansas. The North Carolina fans should be upset. Hubert Davis should be devastated. And there's no devastation. There's no, they're not upset. The, beating Duke the way they did, as we talked about in the last week's show, in the semifinals, the first time ever in the tournament as Coach K's last game, and beating Duke at Karen Indoor Stadium in front of 90 other Duke players, that is like times two. I mean, that is actually worth more than a national championship over beating Kansas or Memphis or something like that. I mean, this is something every Carolina fan I was running into, which I've run to a lot, that's, they have a smile on their face. There is no sadness in Chapel Hill for the, because of their victories. And there is definitely Duke. As many people feel like they wish Duke just didn't even qualify for the tournament. Losing to Carolina twice is just too much for Duke fans, and it's uh, it's very sad. I mean, I'll tell you, I go to the went to the bookstore, and they had a zillion Final Four things, and not one person was buying anything that had anything to do with the Final Four at all. <laughs> no, it, it does make perfect sense, and I get where you're coming from at UNC. That was kind of their Super Bowl. Uh, taking that down. We'll talk more about the college uh, college basketball championships coming up in a little bit. We're also going to have Jim O'Brien join us at around 745. Tell us about Jim. Jim is the most well-known sports writer in all of Pittsburgh. He's been what every single award. He, if you ever heard of Street and Smith magazine, he like was the founder of it. Uh, he's covered every sports, uh, anything. And, and as someone who's in tune to Pittsburgh, I want to ask him, talking about sort of Arnold Palmer and the Masters. I like to ask him some questions about Ben and Tomlin and go through those things and some ideas in terms of Pittsburgh sports. We've had uh, some writers from all around the country talk about their teams. And of course, I'm a big uh, Pittsburgh fan, so it'd be great to have a writer who knows his one. Every single award you possibly can win, he's at every Hall of Fame that you can be in almost, it seems like, for sports writing. So I can't wait to have Jim on my show. So Ira, it doesn't always go like this, where baseball kicks off at the same time as the Masters. And just what a great weekend it was for everyone. You especially, you were at the Masters. This was a bucket list item for you. You don't have many bucket list items left. You check them off uh, left and right. Before we talk about the Masters itself, why don't you give us a little bit of history and why this tournament is what it is, basically the hardest ticket in sports. 
Yeah, I can't. It's it's one of those things that it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in, in a time in sports when it's hard to think events can keep getting, it's the Masters, is it? And that's why I, I can't believe when I was at Duke, I didn't go to it. Like, I, I am amazed. That it, and it also, because when it fell, which is right after the Final Four, sometimes at the Final Four, couldn't go to the Masters, those things. But Bobby Jones, it was started in the 30s because Bobby Jones was the number one golfer in the world. But Tiger Woods at the time, the golfer of all golfers, and he retired in his 30s and said, I'm going to start a golf course. And he, and he saw this piece of land. He said, this is perfect. And it was he's with his investment banker, Cliff Roberts, and they decided to buy this land. He said, this is the in Augusta and with the rolling hills. And it was a nursery. So that's why there were all the flowers that you see there because it was a nursery for, since 1857. You know, there was running for 80 years. It was a nursery. And then Alistair McKenzie, who was one of the top golf course architects at the time, designed this amazing course. And the first tournament opened in 1934, won by Horton Smith. And uh, he got... Fifteen hundred dollars uh, yesterday, uh, Scotty Scheffler got two point seven million dollars from fifteen hundred <laughs> to two point seven million. And originally, I didn't know this was that the tenth through the eighteenth holes were the first nine, and the first one through nine were the second nine. But they reversed it. Uh, they didn't play from forty three to forty five uh, for World War Two, and cattle and turkey were raised on it. They started giving green jackets up until only nineteen forty nine that they gave the green jackets that you have, and you're only allowed. You to wear your green jacket off the course if you're a champion for one year. Then it has to stay. You can't wear it anywhere else. It has to stay there. There are some green jackets that are floating around before they put that those rules in place, and they're very valuable. I think two have come up for auction, and the only reason they didn't sell is the Masters was actually suing people trying to sell them because <laughs> they said they have the right to it. So the champion's dinner is famous and that they have. Where only The only way you get to that dinner, not a wife, not a girlfriend, not a kid, not a, you have to be a champion. Only a master champion is invited. I mean, that's about a special and exclusive club as you can get. Uh, it's 1963. The, uh, um, they started with the past champions like Palmer and Nicholas with the tee shots to begin. The par three contest started in 1960. And I was going to talk a little about the par three. I went to the par three course is beautiful. It's probably one of those beautiful. It's like by far the most beautiful par three course in the world, but it's not part of the course. They don't play those par threes. It's actually on the side of the course. It's a thousand uh, yard course and it is magnificent. And that's played on Wednesdays. And uh, up until 1983, you had to use the caddies that the masters provided. And then they changed it. And you can, you know, noticeable because of its green jump, the white crumb suit, the master's cap, the tennis shoes. And then for the par three contest, that's why the kids wear those little master caddy uniforms and they're pretty cute <laughs> with that um smallest field of the majors only 90 invi- people invited and it's a sudden death playoff you know in all these years we had to play the 18 hole playoff it's it's a sudden death one hole playoff and cbs started it in 1956 covering it they're on a year-to-year contract so that's why you, they are very nice to the, they don't really criticize anything that happens <laughs> to go in otherwise the master would go to somewhere else and there's only if you notice you're like wow i, I just love watching the masters it doesn't seem there's like a lot of commercials because there aren't there's only four minutes of commercials an hour compared to 12 minutes on like a normal broadcast what it seems like 20 on some things and they only have at&t and ibm and mercedes as the sponsors so that's sort of like a background of the masters and it's cool when you're there because you get to sort of even more sense i mean i could go on for an hour about the little tidbits that i learned you know just walking around the course and oh the one thing i wanted to mention there is a statue there of all the past winners and it's the only time i've ever seen this anyone who's tied with it they list the years and they say so and so won it but tied with and then they said, if it won in playoffs. Uh-huh. So even if you tied and forced the playoff, you would still get your name on the on the winner's statue, which is pretty cool. That is really cool. I, I had no idea about that. But Ira, you know, it's funny hearing this from you and, and hear, you know, seeing what you see on TV, watching a lot of the writers from around the country talk about this past week. Is there any 
event in all of sports that has more control over their own product? I mean, that, I didn't know they were on a one-year deal at a time with CBS. Just the way the Masters controls every little aspect of this entire tournament, from the TV to who's allowed in to, to, to what's going to happen. I, I can't think of anything else like this in any sport. Well, I'll give you an example. So, and we'll get to this. On Wednesday, I entered, um, and Tiger Woods was going to be on the driving range at 7 a.m. I went to see Tiger Woods on the driving range. There were very few people who did that. Now, what else, what were they going to besides going to see Tiger Woods on the driving range? They were going to the gift shop. And I was saying gift shop. Like, what, I mean, I go to the Honda Classic, and there's a little stand set up. I talk, we talked about the Genesis, the Riviera Con in Genesis in, in L.A., and they closed it in the middle of the final round. I couldn't even get a T-shirt. This gift shop is the size of an apartment store. It's larger than an apartment store. People go in, and they were spending dollars uh, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000. Now, it's only open. You can only buy master stuff during the week of Master's Week. And you can go, and they have a whole area where you store it and ship it. And I walked in that place when I later, after I saw it, I, the next day I went in and went into it. I couldn't believe how many people um, were in the, the workers. They might have had three, four hundred, five hundred people working there. You can buy, just say, I want this hat, that hat. They had hundreds of registers. It's, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. But if you go outside the master's grounds, you're not going to buy a master shirt. You don't see people on the street selling anything. Like they don't still <laughs> control Augusta. They control. There was nobody selling counterfeit. You can't get a counterfeit hat, a counterfeit, not even counter, nothing that says masters. It is so, in the Super Bowl, I can walk out and see the like Super Bowl. I th see things. But they, the whole town of Augusta, you're not going to buy anything. So they have total, you're right, total control over everything they have. And uh, there's, you're not, it's, to it is unlike, I'm trying to think what, Anything is like the Super Bowl is different than football games because you're playing on a neutral field and there's events and parties and certainly. But the NBA Finals is still like the NBA Finals because it's in a basketball arena and baseball the same thing. Um, the U.S. Open is just like a bigger tennis match. It's hard to think maybe Wimbledon with tennis would be different, but it's hard to imagine any sport that has one event that is just so much different than I've been to all these other golf courses. All the other, I mean, this a U.S. Open compares nothing to this. Like the Honda Classic is very similar to the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open is, has nothing to do with uh, Masters. It's nothing like at all. Because some of the U.S. Open gets played on different courses and those things. But when you go to the U.S. Open, it's sort of like the, the booths are bigger. It's a little, you know, this and that. There's some changes what the Honda is. But it just feels like you're at a golf tournament. Your Masters, it's totally different. So let's talk about it. You were there. By the way, this is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. Follow Ira and his adventures all across social media at Ira on Sports. You'll see some great pictures from uh, the weekend there as well. So, Talk about you got it on Tuesday, I believe. So what happened then? Well, first go go to hotel rooms. So if you, anyone who goes to the Masters thinks they're going to get in like a fancy hotel. I mean, the I would say the Hilton Garden Inn is the highest end hotel <laughs> anywhere near. I stayed at the Motel Six, and I mean that. This is the, when the discussion. The Motel Six was they gave me a room, and the bathroom had the colors on. I'm like. I think this is blood, and it was, when there's a debate whether the whole bathroom is full of blood or not, maybe an <laughs> argument about it, then it, you know that, that was the point. So they moved me to the, the manager's room of the Motel 6. They were, I was able to move to her room and stay in that room. And that room, what's so funny is that room, I, I paid like 150 for those early nights, but on Friday night, 
that room that I stayed in was going to be more than the room that I stayed in the suite at the Washington Duke. Uh, my friend had got us some suites together at the Washington Duke in, in Durham in a super fancy hotel. Because, I mean, these rooms were going, hotel rooms on Friday and Saturday night are almost like $1,000 a night for Super 8s, Motel 6s, anything. Crazy. It's, it's crazy. But <laughs> their whole Augusta is just full. Like, I've gone to these tours. Like, you go to Pebble Beach. You go to the Players at Point of Vista in Jacksonville. It's beautiful around there. It, the area around it is a is just old shopping centers. There's a Hooters that John Daly has set up outside, which I didn't get a chance to see him. <laughs> and then there's this restaurant called T Bones, which is a steak place that everybody goes to. And there's but there's just like one like Midas muffler shop. It looks like a shopping center anywhere else. Like and it goes for months. It's that's what it is. And I someone did tell me later that the Augusta has been bachelors. Augusta Country Club, National Country Club, has been buying all this land, and they're waiting for all the lease expire, and then they're going to make it nicer all around the area. But for now, it looks terrible. I mean, it's really just a bunch of drugstores, car repair places, fast food restaurants. And you expect, wait, I'm going to the most beautiful golf course in the beautiful setting in the world, and I'm entering from this. I've heard what I knew what to expect, but it was actually shocking just to see how, just really how like run-of-the-mill it was outside. I can visualize it. It's every small town in the, in the South. That's what it looks like. And I mean, that's kind of where it is. But just the prestige when you pass through those gates is unrivaled. So let's talk about. And, go ahead. And, and, and just getting, getting the ticket. Oh my gosh, it was so hard. I mean, people get they were on a you're on a, a lottery system to get a ticket. So that's one way to get on this lottery. Then they give tickets out per you write a lottery. Just general, you're you won a lottery. You're a patron forever. And then you have to be on a list. That's a special, special list. You're the most important person in the world if you get on that list. And then you have some they give every year they give out two well, Tuesday tickets or Thursday tickets or Friday tickets. And you write and, and apply for that. And uh, and so those people get tickets. And then there's people like me who just go there and want to buy a ticket. And the prices are through the absolute roof. You can't imagine it. I mean, it is 10, 20 times more than going to a U.S. Open at Pebble Beach or anywhere else. I, it's just so expensive. And there's so few of those tickets. And then if you get a ticket, it's more like a there's nothing electronic. Now, that's the other major thing. There's no cell phones at all, like not on the practice rounds. You can't bring your cell phone Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Like it's not go through security, not leave it somewhere, not let's sneak it in. Like if you bring your cell phone, you're done. Like they're finished. You'll never be able to put your picture on the wall and you're never going to be allowed in the Masters ever again the rest of your life. Like it is that bad. So no one, they, and they remind you a million times, like no cell phones. You don't even want to challenge it because you're nervous about that. So, um, uh, but that was the and so you have this placard or like a special plastic ticket and then like I bought one for Thursday and had to return it. If I didn't return it, I would they would chase me down to try to find it because it's only it's good for four days. So that was why and you had to go to these people that sell it. Like I had to go to T Bones at the bar, meet a guy at the corner. Like it was crazy <laughs> how to get these tickets. But I mean, instead of but you're not going on Ticketmaster, you're not going on StubHub, and you're not just buying a, an electronic ticket because you don't even have, you can't even take Uber there because you don't have your phone to order the Uber. So that's the other thing. It, it, crazy how <laughs> it worked out. You can't... Um, I, I heard that they have cell phone areas on the course where it's like their own phone you can use. Exactly. They're not cell phones. They're landline phones. <laughs> I took a crazy. picture of them. I run stuff there. But it's actually, I've tried to use it and I don't even know how. Like you have to have an AT&T credit card, but you don't, no one has it. Like you can't call collect. I mean, I don't know how people were able to call out, but yeah, they have phones on the course that you can use that you can try to use, but sort of that, I don't know how there's different areas, but no, you better not. That was the one rule. There's one rule. 
and life. I mean, I, but I don't know how, like, how long they're going to keep doing this because you have to pay with your credit card. You can't pay with cash. They don't take cash. But if people have to pay on their phone, then if they don't have credit cards in the future, I don't know how. Maybe they'll, someday you'll have to have, but they are so strict on that. <laughs> it is very, very, like when I saw Justin Thomas, like he pulled out a cell phone. Like he, like I'm like, everyone, someone joked. He goes, Justin, can I use your phone? Can I use your phone? <laughs> That's too much. Uh, so Wednesday was, was your first day um, in there because you wanted to get in for the practice round. And we love practice rounds, and I'm sure you enjoyed this. Yeah, well, the Honda, you go to the practice round, it's free. You go to this. I'm paying. I paid more for this practice round than I go to the NBA finals. So <laughs> the point is, is that, first of all, I learned another lesson. I keep asking people, what's the gate? I couldn't understand. I, I'm going to write a book on how to get to the Masters. But the parking lot's open at 6 o'clock, and you don't walk there. You drive because you, you can go in and out. The parking lots, like at Point of Vedra in Jacksonville, are right next to the course. They're not like the Honda Classic where you get a shuttle bus. Like You just drive there, and you can park. And if you get there early enough, you're like literally at the gate. So you just walk right in. That's they bought all the land around the course and made those parking lots. So some of them are another golf course. You park on the course, but you've got to get there early. That, that, that people who wait until eight to come are, I think, are insane. But you get there at six o'clock. I, I was there one day at five thirty, one day at five thirty at six, and then you park and then you go and you walk in and then they you stand for a little bit. But they open at seven. They open the security gates around. So once they open and you can go through security, then you can go to watch them on the practice round, practice range. Um, you can go to the uh, the uh, uh, gift shop. I would, I would call it the gift mall if I could say that you get so <laughs> big and you go and shop and then you can go and get and then. Some, then by 8 o'clock, that's when the course opens. Like you're standing there right to open the course. They stop you. When they open the course, then everybody runs to the course. And the key thing is that you buy a chair and you can go to somewhere on the course and put your chair down and set. And it doesn't mean you sit there the whole day, but you can sit there if you want. But then no one ever moves your chair. I mean, I left my chair on Thursday between 11 and 12, and that's what between on the Amen corner, and no one touched it. And when I was falling tiger, I stopped in the chair, and then when it was done, I went back to the chair, and you have your name on your chair and everything, but that's what they do with the chair. No other tournament does that. You put a chair at the Honda Classic, so trust me, someone's taking your, I'm taking the chair probably home with them. You're not leaving your chair out, but no one touches their chair. You can leave, I left the shirts and jackets and everything on the chair, and no one touched them. It was, it's just so unique to the tournament that you have this whole chair thing set up. And then uh, uh, the one thing is when you walk in that first time, I'll never forget, as you're walking, there's flowers everywhere. It's like you're entering this. And then these cabins and these houses, these white houses that are beautiful, and you're walking right through, and you finally get to the course, and it is magnificent. I mean, maybe they like the outside looking like the Wendy's, McDonald's, and everything. Cause it's such a sharp contrast to go from that to, like, heaven. Like, you think you almost died, and this is what heaven is because it's so pretty. And, and the ground and the grass, the, the uh, fairways, at Augusta look like greens at the best courses. I mean, I've never seen fairways. And underneath the grounds, like at night, it was raining there on Wednesday and Thursday. It sounded loud because they have an entire, it's like a subway system. They have old drainage system mm -hmm. underneath the course. And then so the water is all running and they, that's why it dries out so fast after it rains. They installed this entire drainage system throughout the entire 18 holes. But that was what's pretty, pretty amazing about it. But uh, I went that first day and went to see Tiger and watched him practice on the range. Looked great. He's wearing a white shirt, black pants and everything. And and then, uh, and then just tried to then started following around for nine holes after he was done on the range. What else did you uh, take in for the rest of the day uh, during the practice round? Because there was probably still plenty of other golfers that you wanted to see. Yeah, well, I followed him for nine holes. Uh, you could take pictures, so my camera was working. And the first, and second, and third holes at, at the wait after the range, 
before the first hole, my camera broke. I've, ne- I've been taking this camera everywhere. Like, it didn't want to work. Like, was it too excited? Did it not work? Like, it just wouldn't. <laughs> to the point where I went to this, like, big photographer. I said, can you please use my camera? Like, what do I do? And I'm like, I cannot believe. I'm here to see Tiger Woods. I cannot take a picture. So two holes, I don't get Tiger. But finally, I pound on it, and it works. I don't know how it came to work. It was unbelievable. So then I'm taking these great pictures. I love these pictures. They were great. Everyone said it's difficult to walk the Masters. I don't – I think it's difficult. I don't think it's impossible. Um, even on Thursday, I, I made some mistakes, which I could do on the Honda or the Genesis. You go down the wrong side of the hole. But it is walkable. The thing that the, that the Masters does is that they have – in the center of the course is an area where people can walk that is not part of the course, which is pretty cool. But you, it helps you go to the different sides. And also, the crosswalks. They have tons of crosswalks. And anyone who knows the Honda or any other course, you know, there's a couple. But there's more of that there. And when I go to the U.S. Open, it's sometimes hard to get across. I never felt like I felt like when I made mistakes where I couldn't get to where I won, like on 10 to 11, I walked down the right side, not the left, and I was stuck, and I had to then re- almost rewalk the thing in. But if I went down the 11th side on the left side, I would have made it. So I saw where I made errors in, in my walking, but if I knew what I was doing, I don't think I could have walked. I could have. I saw Tiger 71 shots on Thursday. I might have seen him hit 65 of them, whether I was up close to him or from a little farther away across the water or something. But I literally hit him. I saw him hit all those balls so I actually like that in terms of now it's hard there's no stands so you can't sometimes you get confused on where the tee box is there are big signs like in the honda oh that's 12 that's 13 that's whatever it's hard to find with with people around but um but because they only have right where the tee box is there's a sign there's a hole number but where the greens are there's no hole so you're trying to figure out like where is this where does this hole go how to lay it out but after a couple more rounds i think i'll be pretty good at the, at the masters <laughs> but i went back then to um, watch Spieth putt, putt. So Jordan Spieth was on the putting green. I watched him putt a little bit. And then it rained, and they had evacuated the whole course. Everybody had to leave the course. But it, luckily, I had my car right there. But it didn't really start to rain, so they let you back in quickly. And then I went and saw a couple other people really fast. But then the par 3 contest started at 1 and not 3. And I went to the ninth hole of the par 3, right where they were teeing off, the one that's on TV over the water. And I got amazing views of the uh, – Sunjay M came by with his father. His father's older. And he, is, he hit the closest to the pin, almost the hole in one. A lot of the other golfers brought their kids. Gary Woodland had like four kids. Billy Horsell had like a bunch of kids. They're all trying to hit. Some of the golfers brought their wives. Scotty Scheffler brought his wife you saw on TV, and she hit uh, the ball on the ninth. So it's pretty good. It's called a competition. No one really cares who wins. It's just a fun thing to have out with your family. And it's, it's such a small area, but there's ways to see everything. So the, there's like, it's almost like a stand to watch. That's really cool. So I really – the par three contest was a great way to get good pictures. It was fun to watch, fun to see the players interact and joke around. But I like that a lot. It's Ira on Sports, True Oldies channel. Mike Balsamo here as well. You can see these pictures all across social media at Ira on Sports. Legendary Pittsburgh uh, writer, legendary Pittsburgh sports writer Jim O'Brien joins us at 745. So, Ira, I don't know if people forget, but every year when the Masters comes around, social media blows up with people sharing the prices of the food because they haven't changed it. I mean, everything's ridiculously affordable compared to sports. So did you happen to have a pimento cheese sandwich? Yeah, that was like $2. Like the food is the, – the, the concern I have is I don't have a lot of I – I, I went hungry the first couple of days because like you're too busy walking around and it's not like the stands where you can stop and get to eat. But if you have a chance to eat, yeah, the food costs nothing. I mean, trust me, the, the gifts – the hats are only $28. Like the stuff at the gift store is not expensive. 
It's just that people buy so much of it, they don't really care. Like you're buying, the, they were buying the, the, gnome, the gnomes were the big popular thing, the Christmas gnomes of the masters. People would go and buy one, stand in line, buy it again. I mean, literally, I met people for Wednesday's round that paid money for their ticket, got their ticket, and literally just went to the gift shop and just bought them. That is the crazy. <laughs> and then ran out to their car. Like they're driving this car. Their car probably cost $25,000. They spent 20000 in gifts for the 25000 Like maybe get a better car, not your <laughs> you know? It was unbelievable. Like the gift thing is crazy. When you see grown men like running around with gnomes and pushing each other around for these gnomes, is this nuts? <laughs> just gonna, that was the gift for this one. But no, the food is cheap. It's great. And the people, and I, I want to emphasize again, I've never seen customer service like at the Masters. Everyone who works there is nice. Everyone is friendly. You, they, I've said about a thousand people times, people say, Are you having, have fun at the Masters. Enjoy the Masters. Have fun at the Masters. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Da, 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 da. Like they are like, you're at like somehow, like, what are you guys? Did you guys ever be mean? Like, what are you ever <laughs> going to be mean? Is there, it's like joking. Like, can you tell me the one mean Masters employee? Like no one, everyone from all ages was super nice. I don't know how they train these people to do this, but it's like I was back in dorm and I went to a restaurant and then I was like asked for something and the person said, well, you need a menu for that. I'm like, oh, I forgot. I'm not the Masters anymore. <laughs> like, I'm not going to get that type of customer service, but wow, it is just shocking how friendly and nice everybody the Masters was. Let's move on to Thursday. Ira. This was the first day of real golf and they kicked it off great. I was really happy with, with Thursday through Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one thing where I told you I did. I got there ridiculously early. I learned my lesson, went there. First thing I did was I ran in there and I got a, my chair. I bought, I actually had to buy, I didn't buy the chair on Wednesday. I learned that I should have that. So I bought some stuff, went there, and ran out to between 11 and 12 because on 11 and 12, I could see them putting on 11 and then I could see them teeing off on 12. That's where all the, the 12th is the par three where they putt into where all the flowers are beautiful in the water where you see people hit the ball in the water. That's where uh, Cam Smith had his problem on 12, but hit in the, in the water so that's where I wanted to, I put my chair and I was like the fourth row so I had a really good seat because I got there early um, but um, then I went back and just went and the funnest thing was on the driving range so I get there early and it was delayed a little bit so you're sitting there and unlike I've gone to driving ranges everywhere it's like you're fighting to get in and the Honda there's like but they have these stands and the stands go up and you're overlooked it's not that far away and, you're, and then each of the golfers comes out of the little hut that they're in or this house, but they all come the same way. Sometimes you go to the driver and they're entering from this side or that side. They all come from the house. And as they walk down, it was like the Academy Awards. Oh, there's Bryson DeChambeau. There's Justin Thomas. There's whatever. He's waving to the crowd. Like everyone who comes out, Cam Smith, waving to the crowd. You know, it's like that thing was like everyone gets an ovation. It was so cool. They didn't make the announcement of the name, but just when they walked out. And of course, when Tiger walked out, everyone went crazy. Everyone was watching him. And Bryson and Tiger were, were hitting balls right next to each other and Scotty Scheffler. So it was Scheffler, Tiger, and Bryson. And, and of course, everybody's watching Tiger and not Bryson. But it was exciting to see that in terms of that whole thing. And then just, just to then to go follow Tiger. He was playing with uh, Joaquin Neiman, who I followed at the Genesis, and Louis Osaven. But remember, no cell phones, no cameras. Like, I was like, I had some great shots. I'm like, this would be such a good picture. Couldn't get it. Um, first five holes, Tiger was even par. And like, he walked, people kept asking how he's walking. I said, you know, he's always had sort of a limp a little bit when he walked. I felt this is my overall thing about Tiger in the leg. 
he looked worse and played worse, I felt, when his back bothered him. When he had trouble moving his back, when I was with Paul with the Honda, when he was in pain that way, I felt you could just see him grimace. The legs seemed to be a problem. It seemed to bother him, but it wasn't like his back. I think if you ask him what his choice of a bad leg or a bad back, he'll take the bad leg. He won a U.S. Open on a broken, on a broken leg, so he's proved. But I think the bad back is a lot harder to deal with, for him at least, than the bad leg. Um, then on the... Uh, uh, on par on the par three six hole, he uh, he it was a, he uh, drove the ball with like three feet in the hole, got a birdie there. And then he two putt bogeyed on uh, on eight, but on nine, he the good what I was impressed with is a nine on the par four ninth. He was in the trees uh, and he was able to, to, to chip out, to hit out through this pine star. Whenever he was in trouble, it didn't seem like he was having you know difficulty like standing. And that's where you thought, wow, it's gonna be hard for him on the uneven surfaces. But he had all the strength in his legs, able to, and he was able to chip in from 15 feet for a birdie. It ended up with a bogey on that. But then on the uh, uh, on the ninth hole, uh, uh, it was just amazing how well he played. And then I sat in the seats for 11 and 12, and then I went on the 14th. He was in the pine straw there again, like a really bad location. Hit it right out into onto the green. Uh, and then in the 15th, he was in, in the mud and actually hit had, had a good putt, good good out there. But he ended up with um, on 18. He was, it was funny, he, on 18, he drove into the trees, the trees came out, and I was walking with it, and a rules official has, like, this gigantic rules book, like, this huge book, and comes out, and they were, like, investigating, like, where the drop should be, and then she rushes back, and I was, like, joking, I said, boy, you, you really have this, <laughs> this book, and she's, like, yes, it's a book I use my whole life, she said that to me, and uh, about how, what the rules are. And then he ended up shooting a one under a 71 in the top 10. So he had a really good, you know, in terms of uh, the first day, that was great. And then I went right back to my seat. Then I watched. Now, the big name groups that came through were DJ, Horschel, Morikawa in one group, Zalatoris, Canelay, Rahm in another, Spieth, Hovland, Shopley, Kepka, Rory, and Fitzpatrick. Like, they're the only tournament that could put, like, all these big names. And what was funny is I saw Dustin Johnson is uh, teeing off on 13 or 12, and then on 11, the ball's coming from 11, and it misses Dustin Johnson by like a, like a foot at least, <laughs> bounces right in front of him while he's on the tee box. And you're like, you're wondering who from that group, you know, Zelatoris, Canelea, Rom would hit the ball that almost hit Dustin and ended up being Rom. So Rom had to come to the tee box on 12 and play it. But what I was surprised was on the 12 tee box, when the ball was just sitting there, DJ just played his tee shot with a ball like a few feet. Out. You would think that he would ask to move the ball, but he just played with the ball right there. So when that was done, then I stayed with with uh, Rom, I'm just going to say with Brooks and Rory and followed them after I got on my chair. And then I followed them through 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And it's funny though, it's like a seven, eight o'clock. Most everybody had left. So it was cool. Like I'm following Brooks and Rory and there's nobody out on the golf course at the masters on Thursday. Now I'm exhausted. I've been there since five <laughs> in the morning, but it was so cool to have done that. No, I, I'm with you too. I would have gotten every <clears throat> every possible second out of it until they had to uh, <laughs> kick me out, drag me off the course. So Thursday ends, and Sungjae Im, I believe, is in the lead, followed by Cam Smith, and there's a bunch of uh, really good players right behind him. Some people were already out of it. Um, it was interesting to see how quickly you know this course turned on some people. Let's go to uh, let's go to Friday, and what happens here is we see guys struggling to make the cut. Yeah, I did not go on Friday. I just watched it on TV driving back. I drove back. 
But uh, I mean, Scheffler started bogey, birdie, bogey, and then he was three under the rest of the way. He finished minus eight. Sunjay M dropped a three under. Um, Schwartzel had a big day. Charles Schwartzel had missed six straight cuts. Former Masters winner, but he played great this whole tournament. But he ended up being at three under for the day. Adeki uh, uh, was at three under, and Lowry uh, three under, and uh, JT Justin Thomas had a, shot a sixty-seven to get to one under. But uh, plus four or better made the cut. And the, the names that didn't make the cut were you know, Bryson DeChambeau shot a 76 and 80 with a plus 12. I mean, to show you where it was, it's Sandy Lyle, who's 65 years old, <laughs> shot the same that Bryson did. You know, you would think that, you know, Bryson was former number one in the world and it was just a favorite two years ago to win this tournament. Gary Woodland, who we both like going into it, had, he didn't play well, shot a 75 and 77 with a plus eight. Shoffley, 74 and a 77 plus seven. And the two big surprises. I mean, talk about people with your pools and everything. Brooks Kapka, who we both, you know, loved and whatever, 75, 75, a plus six. He doesn't make the cut. And Jordan Speed, a 75 and 75. Worse than that, on 18 on the second day, he double bogeyed. If he makes the, if he pars that hole, he makes the cut. If not, by double bogey, he misses the cut. So, uh, um, Tiger that day started, he started awful, bogeys on for the first five holes. Then he had a perfect chip on five, eight for a birdie. And uh, after bogeying 11 and 12, uh, in, on the approach on 13, which is Ray's Creek, was almost in the water, stopped short, was able then to, to get it up and, and get a par there. Uh, oh, actually, and, uh, and birdied that hole. If not, he would probably have missed the cut. Like that was, the, the fact that the ball just stopped going in the creek, then he was able to get a birdie on that hole. He birdies on 14 and 15 and 16, almost had birdies on those holes. But uh, he shot a 74, it was plus two for the round, but he was one over for the tournament. And really, besides Scheffler, you know, he's still in the mix. He's still, he's still there. It was his 22nd straight cut. So if you're following Tiger, you're like, wow. I mean, that's impressive. I mean, the question is, was like, could Tiger even make the cut? If you look at his first two rounds, you're like, amazing performance. Because even though Saturday and Friday was the weather, it got colder, it was windier, and, and he shot that 74. But that 74 was almost more impressive than the 71 he shot the day before. So, you know, it's interesting talking about, you know, Bryson not making the cut. It goes to show you, though, Hideki Matsuyama, the, you know, the reigning champ, he was he withdrew the prior week due to a neck injury. Bryson, apparently his doctors told him, do not play. You are not physically able to play. You're going to hurt yourself worse. He went out and played anyways. That's how important the Masters is, I guess, Ira. He probably wasn't even expecting to win, but he had to appear, had to give it his all, may have, you know, set himself back a few months in recovery, but this tournament is just that big. Well, that you saw Paul Casey entered and then had and, and pulled and pulled out the last minute, but then you also saw Louis Olsen on Friday yeah. was in Tiger's group. And on Thursday, when I walked with him, I didn't I say that, but on Thursday when I walked with him, they said, "Will the Tiger sit down?" He never sat down. Louis almost every time when they got to um, a chair with, with uh, uh, you know on the tee boxes or whatever chance he could, he would sit down, and then he withdrew because of his back being uh, having a bad back. So it was really that was what. What I noticed was that the fact that Louis was like something had to bother him or he was tired, but Tiger, but I was thinking, well, Tiger doesn't want to sit down because if you're stiff, you sit down, it's hard to, hard to move and those things. But, you know, Tiger, I felt Tiger walk great. I mean, he, I know he was limping, but he didn't seem like he was slowing down, wasn't whatever. And I also, when I was so close to him when he hit the ball, rarely did I see a grimace. Like when I said, when I he hit with his back, I noticed that grimacing, the pain, the ah, like that. 
I just felt like, you know, he was mad if he hit a bad shot. He wasn't mad because he was hurt. So he did say that he didn't feel he was in pain, that his mobility is what's hurt, that his rods and his legs and everything like that. So I think going forward, that's a great sign. I mean, I was remember, he did not play the Genesis last year. He hasn't played in 15 months because of his back. It, well, first, his injury, but he wasn't playing a year ago or 15 months ago because of his back problems. That's why he didn't play the Genesis at that tournament. And there was a question whether he could play the Masters because of his back. He has the car accident. Somehow his back now has, is doing better, much, much better. And uh, I think if, it, if his back hadn't improved, he would never have been able to be out there. Let's go to Saturday. It's moving day, and, man, Scotty Scheffler, he was moving. Yeah, and it was cold and windy. I wasn't there for that. But, I mean, I could see even on Thursday when it got cold. I mean, it, it's a weird course. I was on 11 and 12, didn't feel any wind. I go up to 18, my hat is blowing off my head. I mean, it's you could be at different areas of the course and because it's with, with the hills and everything. Uh, there's some holes that there's just no wind, and there's some holes that it's like 30 miles an hour. Um, there was a point on Saturday where Scotty Schiffer was, was six holes up, I think after eight holes, running away with the tournament. But then he started to have some trouble. Cam Smith played well. And then on 18, um, he led by four, hit the ball in the woods. If he didn't find the ball, he had to go back. I mean, that could have been a disaster. Yeah. But luckily he, for him, they found the ball. He only dropped one stroke. So he goes into Sunday with a – he shot it was a nine under. Cam Smith was at six. M was at four. Lowry and Schwartz at two. But it was really – you felt it was more between a two-horse race between Scheffler and Smith at nine and six. I didn't really know if M at four under could come back. But maybe at least a chance. But I think that's sort of what on Saturday with the bad weather. Tiger – Oh, it was, of course, sort of painful to watch this. I mean, he hit the ball like he did Thursday and Friday. It was the putting. He had four three putts, two other times of putts that counted three putts, and then uh, he had a, a four and he had a four putts. And uh, in his three putts on nine and eleven for bogeys, uh, he had birdies. The thing was, he had birdies on twelve and thirteen, where he was like plus three. So he was sort of like in the mix. But then he dropped four shots in the final four holes. He had a bogey on sixteen, bogey on seventeen, and a double on eighteen, mostly because of missing like really easy putts. And I think it was just at that point it was cold. It's windy. He's tired. Hasn't played in 15 months. Um, you're playing in Florida. You know how warm it is. I mean, it was just, the temperatures were like 50 degrees, so, uh, which I think if you go to the north like 50, that's pretty warm. But in a golf tournament like that, when you're used to 80, it's cold. But he had a bad day and shot 78, which was his worst round uh, for the Masters. So isn't it appropriate going into Sunday, Ira, that the guys playing the best golf on the planet right now are at the top of the leaderboard in Scotty Scheffler and Cam Smith and then – Scheffler opened up poorly, bogeyed the first two holes. Cam Smith held on, so he was within a stroke. I thought we were going to have maybe a Sunday to remember, and it ended up being a Sunday to remember, but just for Scotty Scheffler because he was lights out from there. Well, Smith birdied the two holes. Scheffler was lucky to par the first two holes. Sheff, Smith oh, yeah, yeah, went yeah. from 9-6 to 9-7, 9-8. So now we all, you know, it felt like Scheffler was bogeying it because Smith was birdying so easily You know that you felt like Scheffler was just struggling to par. And so there was 9-8. They go to the third hole, uh, the par four. Smith is off the team. You're an electrical grid. Uh, and then and, – and so Scheffler had a bad shot too. Scheffler hits his next shot, and it's off the green in a bad location. You know, it looks like it's going to be a very, very hard up and down. And you're like, oh, my gosh, like the, tor- the lead right now is 9-8. This is easily going to go the other way, 9-8 the other way. Smith could birdie the hole. Scheffler could bogey the hole. And you're going to have a switch. In, you're gonna have, yeah. Smith is going to run away with this. And the third hole, 
you were going to have that. But what does Smith hits the ball exactly next to Scheffler on off the green, and then Scheffler goes first. He chips in for a birdie. So instead <laughs> of bogey and he birdies like a two second, and then Smith hits a bad shot where he expects him. Not really bad, but that's such a hard position. He bogeys the hole. So instead of that, then it goes down to ten seven. So suddenly instead of you know this was you talk about a two shot swing a one shot. This was a four shot swing from nine eight to ten seven. It seemed like, and that was. Uh, and that would then after that, then Scheffler, then bogey, I mean, uh, Smith bogey uh, uh, the fourth hole, the par three, sort of a carryover for the last hole. So really, I mean, that's why I would put that number in there. I mean, here's someone who was looking at being at nine, maybe. He's down to six. And now Scheffler, instead of being back at six, he's at 10. So that's really what. And then, then you're starting to watch like McElroy. You know, McElroy had started bogey, birding holes uh, on 10. He chipped in and he was at 500 for the day at 400, but just still so far back. Like, how's he going to catch Scheffler at six stroke lead? Uh, and then, uh, uh, and then Rory eagled on 13 to go to six. I mean, that was, it was just amazing when you're just watching what Rory, whereas Scheffler had a four stroke, it was like 11, seven, he was 11 under, Smith was at seven. And then Rory at eight, uh, Rory on 13 gets an eagle. And then after that, but then um, there was on the 10th hole, but Scheffler bogeyed, but Smith also bogeyed. So the lead still stayed four shots, 10, six. But at that time, Rory was at six under. So Rory actually tied Smith for second place. But 12th was the big turning point. Uh, that's the hole where the water raised Creek. Smith hit the ball in the water. Scheffler had a long par putt, made it. Uh, and uh, with the, But Smith ended up triple bogeying the hole, going down to the to a four. You know, it's pretty much over for Smith at that point. And really the tournament was sort of anticlimactic the rest of the way. Uh, Scheffler on the, on the 13th hole had a par. And then at that point, Rory and Morikawa both were at 18. They chip out of the, <laughs> out of the stand on these amazing shots to go to seven. Rory went to seven, but still Scheffler had that lead. And I guess, you know, that was what you, you know, what you were saying. Scheffler just didn't collapse. We've seen collapses before, but he birdied 14 to go to 11. He birdied 15 to go to 12. And by that, it was pretty much over and just coasted in to 18. The only ones who get upset were he was putting with 12 and seven. So his lead was a five stroke lead on 18. He's putting what three, four foot putt. He missed, I mean, had he needed like what, seven putts from that difference to, to win the tournament, <laughs> but he misses his first two putts. And people who had bet the leader would win by four or more, you know, they ended up losing the bet because he ended up uh, leading by three. That was really weird at the end how he, like, you're, you're also wondering if it was a happy Gilmore moment, you know, where he just keeps putting and putting. I mean, that would be the greatest sports moment. I mean, a horrendous moment of all time if he couldn't uh, get the putt in from three feet away. So let's talk a little bit about Scotty Scheffler and this run he's been on for, say, three months now, is just an absolute tear. And I don't know how much you can blame the caddy or, you know, praise the caddy, but his new caddy's Ted Scott, who is also Bubba Watson's caddy, when he won uh, when he won Augusta. This caddy now has earned him more money in, I think, four months than he had in leading up to this. Absolutely fantastic run that he's been on. It's actually 45 days. It's unbelievable. It's like, it's, I mean, it's amazing to think that in the time that Tom Brady was retired between the <laughs> Super Bowl and when he came out, Scheffler has now won four tournaments, including the Mad. I mean, it's insane that he's won this many tournaments. Um, and I've heard, we've heard of Scheffler. He came out of Texas. He was one of the top. He won the World Junior in 2013. He went to the same high school as Matthew Stafford and Clayton Kershaw. So if you go to Highland Park High School in Dallas, Texas, I mean, there's a lot of high expectations at that school. Um, but the last two years, the Masters, he was 19th and 18th. He was in the top 10 of the majors last year, but he was, he was chosen for the Ryder Cup. But I mean, even I had criticized him. Like, anyway, he hadn't really won it. He had won a tournament. But since he won Phoenix, which was 
ironically, the day of the Super Bowl. Remember the Phoenix when he won the Phoenix? And then he went Bay Hill. Then he won the World Golf Championships. And now the Masters. It's been on a roll, and he's won four. You wonder how many he's going to more he's going to win this year. But it is I mean, people have a tie. His name has come out of nowhere in terms of winning now. But as a junior, people have been talking about him. When he was entering these junior tournaments, he was like a Tiger Woods. He was like one, like he was winning tournaments, like almost every single tournament he entered, he won. Um, so people knew about Scheffler's name, but it was just they're, they're waiting whether he was just going to peak as a junior player and not be able to translate on the pro tour. And he certainly has. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Just about five minutes from legendary Pittsburgh sports writer Jim O'Brien joining us here on Iron Sports. So Iron it kind of took a backstage to the Masters, but you were at the NCAA championship game. You were there for the entire weekend, and it proved to be, obviously Duke didn't get the results we wanted, but it ended up being a good tournament, and we have uh, some new champions here in Kansas. Well, it was one. It was a great game. I, I, I we did the show right before the game last time. I ended up getting a phenomenal seat in the eleventh row, right in behind the North Carolina bench. Even though there was a guy who sat in the fifth row, who I think was seven feet tall. Like I, I every time he was the one who was always wanting to stand up during the game. Like his goal was, I'm going to stand up. Like getting like you don't need to stand. You're seven feet tall. Just sit. You can see everything. And that sort of met. But I got it was a great seat. Absolutely amazing. And uh, to be able to watch that, you know, this was a this was a this was a huge win. For for, for Kansas, of course, to win the national championship. They had been, this was fourth national, fourth semifinal for Bill Self, but his second title. Uh, and they had all these allegations, which were probably true to some of them in terms of recruiting violations and all those things that Self had to deal with. And the fact when Mark Emmerich gave him the trophy, he goes, I like to wear this trophy to Kansas City, not the University of Kansas, you know, not even knowing the name of the school. So, uh, but during the game, look, Kansas jumped out 9 3. People watched the game. Carolina went on six string straight points, took it, built up a 16 point. Lead. I think what helped Kansas a lot was at halftime. It was super extra long. It was almost 25 minutes. They came out and they decided to force RJ Davis. They forced Caleb Love. And I'll tell you what, Carolina, they just fed in. It was almost like a rope-a-dope strategy because they started to run and run, and they're not a deep team. And Kansas just tired themselves out. And that lead went from 6-15 all the way down. I mean, there was a point where it went down to 10. But it went down. It got close within uh, with 13-11. A Cormac for Kansas cut it to a three-point game. So the lead just evaporated. It wasn't like one of those things where they chip away, chip away. It was a situation where they didn't go – where for four minutes, Carolina didn't even score. They went – these periods where they were just – and they were shooting. I mean, it wasn't they were holding the ball. It was just up and down, fast-paced. Caldwell was out of control. R.J. Davis was out of control. They were taking bad shots and, and just – but that's how they played, honestly. But they could have – they should have probably slowed it down and tired them out. But Remy Martin for – is a transfer from Arizona State. You saw him. He came in there. It was draining. He drained a three at 10-23 left to go to make it to, to go up to 53-50. Uh, and then it, it was 57-57 when Puff Johnson. So finally, Puff Johnson came in for uh, Leaky Black for uh, Carolina. And that finally got bench scoring. I mean, Puff Johnson was the only one really scoring for Carolina at the end of the game. But Remy Martin, another big three and a layup to make it 65-61. Uh, it was 65-65. And, and Martin, again, hit that big three in the corner. He would, he fires that three so fast, I couldn't even get a picture. Because the moment he touches it, it goes off his hands. And then uh, Loves makes a shot, uh, stopped Kansas, and then Manic had, had a tip in too. So Carolina, with a 141 left, had a one-point lead. And this is where I get Kansas credit. They didn't come down, take stupid three-point shots, stupid three-point plays. They got into the big guy, McCormick. He misses the shot, got the rebound, put the shot back up, made it 70-69. 
Now, Baycott was in the game at the time. It was the next possession. Love misses a shot. Baycott gets the, they threw it back to Baycott from Carolina. He fumbles, turns the ball over, hurts his ankle. He's out of the game. Remember, they're up one with 22 seconds left. They throw it to McCormick. He makes another shot inside, make it 72-69. Uh, but that was what I like what Kansas did. When the pressure came, they got to the big guys. What I say about Duke, they didn't get to Bonchero. They didn't, they didn't throw it to their star big guy to score. They tried to fire up these threes. Kansas was smart at the end of the game. They didn't try for a crazy three. They got the ball inside. And then Love and Johnson both missed three-pointers at the end of the game. I mean, Kansas had a stupid inbounds where they almost threw the ball away with four seconds to go when they stepped on the end line, giving North Carolina another chance that they missed. But, I mean, the key of the game was just shooting. Carolina shot 31% from the field, 5 for 23 from three-point line. They out-rebounded Kansas by 20, 50 by 35, still lost the game. And uh, Love shot 5 for 24, 13 points, 1 for 8 from 3. R.J. Davis was 5 for 17. When you have your combined, your guards are 10 for 41. It's amazing to see. And Kansas just had balanced scoring from McCormick, Wilson, uh, and, and Aga Bobby. I'll tell you what, I'm arguing about how they're giving these chances. How you not give McCormick the MVP of the game? He hit the two game winning shots. He had 20 some points, 10 rebounds, both games in the final fours. They give it to Agabagi, who only had like 12 points, shot four, three of four, you know, four, nine shooting. I don't understand. I mean, he's their better player, but it really was McCormick should have been the MVP, the most outstanding player, but they're not going to complain. But I just thought that was where I felt that. Uh, McCormick's play was tremendous. He outplayed. He actually outplayed Baycock and and came in. And it was a, a two years ago. Kansas was one of the, was probably one of the favorites to go to the tournament. It was shut down because of COVID. Many of these players that we saw today last or two, last week, they were on that team. So this sort of gave them a chance to redeem themselves, or not redeem, but actually win the title that they felt they should have won two years ago. Let's bring in Jim O'Brien. This is Iron Sports. I'm honored to have Jim O'Brien on. Jim O'Brien, you can see him at jimobrien.com. He is a legendary. Pittsburgh sports writer, commentator, everything. He was one of the founders of Street and Smith's Basketball Yearbook. He's written for the Sporting News, the New York Post, the Pittsburgh Press. I've read everything that Jim's written over many years. His insights are amazing, and he has all these great books on Pittsburgh athletes. So, Jim, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Well, thank you. You know, I got my start on a daily newspaper in Florida with the Miami News back in 1968. 69, the uh, covering the Miami Dolphins. So uh, going full cycle now, and <laughs> sitting in my home office here in Pittsburgh, and surrounded by pictures of people that I interviewed in sports and so forth. So I, I've uh, enjoyed a nice career, and, and I still love sports. And saw one of the greatest comebacks in sports history this past week with uh, Tiger Woods playing the way he did in the Masters. Unreal. Well, I know I, you wrote an article on it, and it was beautiful to read. Uh, you've covered, certainly from Pittsburgh, Arnold Palmer over this year, so your love affair in terms of the Masters and golf is there. Uh, what you have to say, it was just amazing to, to see that Tiger, from the injuries that he had, uh, the, the fact that his leg was almost amputated, to think that he could come back and, and make the cut of the Masters, pretty tremendous. Well, I've been complaining for the last couple of weeks about the fact that I haven't been able to play pickleball because my knee's killing me, and uh, I feel like a real wimp now <laughs> after watching uh, Tiger Woods in action. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be an inspirational situation for a lot of people. One of my buddies who's been worried about whether he could play golf again or not because he just had so shoulder so surgery, he said to me after the first day of the Masters, he said, 
maybe this will get me back out playing golf again. Maybe it's possible. So I think Tiger has not only proven that uh, he could play and play well, but uh, I think he's lifted a lot of people's spirits who are dealing with one difficulty or another, and that's what sports is supposed to do, inspire us. Well, another inspiration thing was the Final Four, and I know that you've been involved with uh, you know, college basketball forever, and, and you certainly follow Coach K's career, and what an amazing Final Four, and what a run there. Almost Duke was almost a fairy tale type ending in terms of winning the national championship. Well, it's the same way. I think that uh, it was asking too much, perhaps, for us to think that uh, Coach K and the Duke basketball team could win the national championship. But they certainly gave it a great run, and uh, Coach K handed off the national spotlight, in a sense, to Tiger Woods, and Tiger didn't uh, fumble the golf ball either. I mean, he, he was under a lot of pressure from his fans to do something, and to me, just showing up, just showing up, it wasn't any ceremonial tee-off. He, uh, he said in, that uh, before the uh, match that he wouldn't be back if he didn't think he could win. And uh, that shows you the kind of uh, outlook he has on, on what he demands of himself performance-wise. But I've been fortunate, uh, Ira. You know, I, I went to high school, by the way, with a guy named Ira Kaufman at uh, Taylor Allardyce High School in Pittsburgh. But when I was at the Miami News, you know, I covered High Lie, I covered alligator wrestling in the Everglades, I covered uh, dog racing, I covered uh, Pele and soccer. And in Miami in those days, it was a it was a uh, tourist attraction, and a lot of great athletes when they had some time off, a lot of great athletes would come through Miami. Uh, and we used to get tips. We somebody from the airport would call us and say, you know, we just saw Gordy Howe from the Red Wings come through and stuff like that. And we'd rush off to the airport to to do an interview because at that particular time, Miami didn't have uh, a lot of pro sports, uh, so uh, they were eager to interview anybody that came to town. Well, you know, we had some people talk about the Miami Dolphins before. And, you know, for for so long, the Dolphins sort of owned, I mean, they were the only game in town in terms of pro sports. But they, and I think that mystique in the magic has captured even to this day in terms of their dominance of the sports market. So maybe talk a little about what the Dolphins meant in terms of South Florida over the years that you covered, were down there covering sports. Well, the Dolphins played in the final year of the American Football League. And then, of course, they went into the merged National Football League. And uh, they had some really good players. Even this one year that I covered them, they had a uh, three wins and eight losses and one tie record. And yet at that time, they had Bob Greasy as the quarterback, they had Larry Zonka and Jim Kick and Mercury Morris, all three of them as uh, running backs. And they had some good receivers. They had Nick Bonacani was the captain of the defensive team. And uh, they had Bill Stanford, who had just come out of Georgia, and Bob Hines, who also was a, a, a rookie. And they, they had a good good nucleus for a football team. And uh, that was the last year for George Wilson as the coach. <laughs> and uh, the next year, Don Shula comes in. And Shula and uh, Wilson – 
had been colleagues earlier in their coaching careers. And I remember I was getting ready to go to New York. So at the first press conference for Don Shula, when he recognized that uh, who I was at the time, he said to me, you're the guy that got George Wilson fired. <laughs> and I said, uh, and you're the guy who took his job while he still had it. Ooh. And it was like touche. And I, of course, I knew I was going to New York, so I wouldn't have to deal with that stare for the next few years. But uh, he proved to be the, the, what they were missing because they went from 3-8-1 and one to 10-4 and four the, the next year under Shula. And then uh, two years later, they had a perfect season. So uh, Shula was the right guy. George Wilson might have been a, a player's coach, but George Wilson was a uh, owner's coach because he he brought them into having a, a great team. And then talk about another team in terms of more close in the Pittsburgh area, the Steelers. What's the legacy of Ben Roethlisberger? You've seen his whole career. You've been in Pittsburgh during the entire time. What what are, when we go back at Ben? What how do you think he's going to remember it in terms of in Pittsburgh sports history? Well, I think he was the franchise quarterback for he was on his there 18 years and uh you know they get knocked a lot because they didn't draft uh Danny Marino when they had a, an opportunity to do so and we were reminded of that uh just this past week because when they didn't draft Marino they ended up drafting um Gabe Rivera a nose tackle from uh Texas Tech and the thing is is that uh Rivera in his rookie season, was killed in an automobile wreck. And we were just reminded of that this past week whenever uh, Dwayne Haskins, who is going to be competing this year with about three other quarterbacks for the starting position on the Steelers, was killed in a, uh, by a, being hit by a dump truck on a, on a highway early in the morning, and uh, I just learned a little while ago that they're going to have a uh, ceremony to honor Dwayne Haskins this Saturday uh, in Columbus. He had played for Ohio State prior to uh, entering the NFL draft. So he had shown some real promise uh, this year in uh, off-season training and so forth. And uh, you, you always hate to hear of, a, of an athlete dying young. Right. I mean, I forgot the comparison to Senor Sack Ed Rivera. I mean, that was, again, that was, a, we never, as Steeler, he never even played for the Steelers. But whereas uh, Haskins had played a little last year and then was looking forward to this year, and it's just a tragedy that that happened. And, and, and then to, to segue into to how Mike Tomlin handled it, in terms of Mike Tomlin's growth in terms of a coach, I mean, he's clearly now with Colbert leaving the, the uh, um, at general manager, the team and, and retiring, that Tomlin is going to be the, the face of the franchise, really, as if he's not been, but also making the decisions in many respects. And where do you think Tomlin goes and how he takes over the Steelers and, I guess, how long he's going to coach now? Well, I, he's still a young man, so I think Tomlin can coach. For, the Steelers don't fire their coaches. <laughs> and the thing about, about uh, we mentioned Don Shula, I don't even know if you know this story, but this – he was just. This was just mentioned again this past week about why you know why didn't the Steelers draft Danny Marino when they had had a chance? 
I think the best thing that ever happened to Danny Marino was not being drafted by the Steelers. I really believe that. And, of course, uh, Ben Roethlisberger would agree with me. But the thing is, is that Coach Fazio, who was the football coach at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, whenever uh, Marino was there and Jackie Sherrill was also his coach, I came to be the assistant athletic director at the University of Pittsburgh the year after Marino left to go to the Dolphins. And Fazio, who was still there, told me that Don Shula was the only coach in the National Football League who called him directly, who called Foch Fazio and said, what's the story about Danny Marino and fooling around with drugs when he was at Pitt? He said he was the only coach. Can you imagine that? I mean, they, they pride themselves on being so thorough in their scouting and, and so forth. And people in Pittsburgh knew that Danny Marino, you know, there were rumors making the rounds that he had fooled around with drugs. But the thing is, is that when he fooled around with drugs, and it was marijuana, which is now being legalized in most places in the United States, it's kind of like how all of a sudden it's not, it's not a sin to bet on sports. Tell that to Pete Rose. But the thing is, is that uh, Marino goes to Florida, and Bino Cook told me this story. Bino Cook said that he asked Don Shula, when did you know that Marino was your best quarterback? And he said the first day he came out and threw the football next to David Woodley. He said they were standing next to each other throwing the ball, and that's when I knew that Marino was the better quarterback. And Danny Marino, you know, some people live unreal lives. He came to a team that uh, did not have a great running backs. They had great running backs when I was there, but not whenever Danny Marino was there. But they had good young, good receivers, and Danny took advantage of it. So Danny Marino goes to Florida to play pro football, and his dad told me one time that everybody used to say to him, Boy, it's a shame that uh, your son didn't uh, sign with the Steelers. And he said, yeah, I missed all those vacations to the north side of Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. Now, you have uh, under jimobryan.com, we can get your books. Uh, and you just finished a, a book on the Steelers during the COVID years, which I read, which is amazing. Uh, Steelers are all Pittsburgh sports during the, during the COVID, COVID years. And also books on Frank O'Hara, uh, Brocky Blair, everybody. It's, it's an amazing set of books that you've, you've written. Thank you, so, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And maybe we'll have you on later. We could get delve into the Pirates because I, would, I know we have to really figure out what we can do to turn around my baseball team there. But thanks again for coming on Iron Sports. Well, thank you. And let's do it again. Great stuff there from Jim O'Brien. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. So, Ira, the NBA playoffs are going to get started this week. We don't actually know the details, but play-in games start tomorrow. Yeah, we have the uh, Nets playing the Cavs and the Hawks playing the Hornets in the East. Remember how it is. The Nets and the Cavs are the 7 or 8. The winner gets the 7 seed. The loser has to play the winner of the Hawks and Hornets game for the 8 seed. I look like I think the I think it's going to be the Nets and Hawks. I think the Hawks are going to beat the Hornets, and then Atlanta is then going to play the Nets. I mean, Atlanta will be the 8 seed. The Nets will be the 7 seed. And then the West, um, I, I think it will be in terms of the Lakers, of course, didn't make the playoffs. Their coach got fired today. Minnesota plays the Clippers, and New Orleans plays the Spurs. I think Minnesota wins that game with the Clippers. I think New Orleans wins. So, like, in the East – 
beats the Clippers. It'll be Minnesota in the seventh seed and New Orleans in the eighth seed. So, Ira, uh, baseball started over the weekend. Uh, so we're about four minutes into the season total. And we're kind of seeing what we expected. The teams we thought we were going to be winning are winning and teams that we thought would be losing are losing. Yeah, I mean, I think it was some interesting stories is that the Orioles are terrible. The Tampa Bay Rays played them. It was 15 runs to four. I want to class it. Wander Franco, the good young player for the Rays, was just 21 years old, was six for 11. But the fact is the Orioles are a team that, I mean, if you're playing the Orioles and you can't beat them every series, we're not talking two games that really sweep them, then you, it's a defeat. Uh, but it's exciting. I mean, there's some players like Scherzer had his first start for the Mets, six innings, and he gave up three runs. But And then some players have been out with injuries all last year. Noah Singergaard and Justin Verlander. Uh, pitched on Saturday night, uh, and they for Houston and the, and the Angels, and they both pitched great. They both won nothing games, so got some good young pitching right there. And and the other thing to find is like a Bobby Witt. We're talking about all these players used to have service time manipulation. You didn't see them come up until May. Uh, Chris Bryant for the Cubs is the most notorious, where they brought the best player in, in amateur baseball up and later. Now all the good players are up here playing. No one's waiting to May to bring them up to save them time because of the way the new contract. So that's a good aspect of it in terms of how they did the collective bargaining agreement. And Ira, what's going on in uh, auto racing? Um, just really with this quick is that uh, Charles Leclerc from the Ferrari won in Australia, and that's a huge win in terms of for, for Leclerc and the Ferrari's dominating. Verstappen was knocked out with car trouble. Hamilton finished fourth in the race. But uh, this is the next in April 24th. They're playing in Italy, and then May 8th is Miami. I'm going to try to get some really good guests on for this. This thing in Miami, I'm telling you, is going to come up. Everyone's going to talk about Formula One. This is huge. Um, the first race uh, for Formula One in Miami, and uh, very, very big at the time. And in NASCAR, William Byron won in Martinsville. And next week is the fun race they have due in Bristol on the dirt. And Ira, where are you heading this week? Nothing. <laughs> I, don't think I, do. I think that I this week will be actually. I think next weekend I would do the Heat. At the Heat, we haven't had this time when the Heat's first game is, but I'd probably go next weekend to the Heat's first game. So I think that's what it would be. It, we don't know who they're going to play, and uh, hopefully they don't have to play the Nets. But uh, um, that would be what I would have to see is the, is the is the Heat's first game. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Jim O'Brien. He's Ira. A Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.